Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In June of 2009, the Honduran military put President Manuel Zelaya on a plane and escorted him from the country. Honduras hasn't been the same since. Over the years, one of the people I've talked to about Honduras is Dana Frank. She has a new book out, The Long Honduran Night, Resistance, Terror, and the United States in the Aftermath of the Coup. Dana is a professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Great to see you in person after all these years. Uh, How thrilling to meet you all and also to meet all the producers here and all the people that make it happen. You write this book from your point of view and you tell your story about what was going on with you in 2009. You were um, kind of about to get out of the Honduras business, but they kept pulling you back in. Well, I don't know. They pulled me back in. I I pulled myself back in. I mean, I, as I say in the book, I had been doing research in Honduras for about eight years, and I was going to move on to other projects and got this phone call at 530 in the morning on June 28, 2009. So almost 10 years ago, there had been a military coup that uh, no one had seen coming. And so, you know, I, I went from zero to what do I do about this and got up every morning, you know, cried and tried to figure out what I was going to do about it. And I it wasn't just an abstract political decision. It was like my friends were getting picked up by the military. I worried about everybody I ever knew in Honduras being killed. And that living with that terror ha- has driven um, my research about Honduras, my advocacy work, and um, and my personal life in many ways for 10 years now. You describe going down to a radio station in Honduras and talking on the radio publicly and basically – voicing opposition to people who might want to kill you. And this is, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a big step to take. Well, what, the first time I went down there after the coup, which was uh, about eight months later in February 2010, I, I swore that I, I wasn't going to go on the radio. I wasn't going to go any demonstrations. I wouldn't talk to any cab drivers. And I was going to do all these things to keep myself safe. And within, like, I don't know, 36 hours, I was on the radio with friends denouncing the Honduran government and the Obama administration. And you know, it's this thing you read about um, about struggles in other countries where where people choose to take risks because it's part of something larger themselves. And you, I, I felt that power and inspiration of what the Hondurans were doing. And yes, I put myself at risk, but I always want to underscore that my risks are a little fingernail compared to the Hondurans. And, you know, I'm a white middle class person with a U.S. citizenship, connections in the media. I can get on a plane and get out of there in theory. And um, be safe. And so I, while I do take risks when I go down there, and I do want to also underscore that that's nothing compared to the Hondurans and their risks all day, every day. And that's why so many of them are in exile. And you describe the situation with a lot of your friends and people you know taking part in the resistance, just being really out there, even though it is dangerous. They are, they were committed, and there was a joyful kind of reaction to being out there and uh, that kind of carries you along gets you into the radio station does 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 a lot makes <laughs> well, you dance you know i really re- delivery put that in that first um chapter of the book of like you're in the streets with me and with the Honduran people because you know so much of the reporting about Honduras and we can talk about this more is that it's just a river of horror which there is a huge it is a river of horror but also the joy of struggle still to stay now we know this up here when you go to a huge demonstration and you feel thrilled and powerful and, and it's they're not, it's the same thing but also that people were just so thrilled and proud to be in the streets and to be brave and it was this giant collective uh, 
brave high of being in struggle and fighting back. And the way where people were just fearless and also old people, people in wheelchairs, people bringing toddlers. I mean, the sense of we are here, we dare you to kill us, you know, because we are not going to accept this. And also the coalition that the resistance brought together, our own fantasy coalition of the labor movement, the women's movement, the LGBTI movement, Campesino movement, Afro-Indigenous movement, um, human rights groups, uh, to see that coalition and middle-class people who were not necessarily part of any of those movements that were committed to the rule of law. And we understand that now what it means to care about the rule of law up here in the North and and constitutional order. And it was a very um, beautiful thing. And I, I wanted the reader to feel that in their bones. Before the second chapter, which is really about the, the, the when the really terrible things start kicking in. And, and there is a lot of repression and uh, there is a lot of assassinations and very deliberate assassinations. It's amazing. Your reaction to that is eventually go to Congress and you, you appeal to the U.S. Congress and you've got a, a section that's pretty funny. You describe your own reaction to Congress as one that where you can't make a difference, where only corporate people uh, get action in Congress, and but yet you decide to give it a shot. Uh, what did you learn about Congress and, and the U.S. government? Well, you know, the Congress chapter was very hard to write because most two-thirds of the book isn't about me and my activism at all, I want to underscore. It's about the hunter and people and their struggles and the repression by the hunter and government and the details of U.S. policy. But about a third of the way into the book, I talk about going to Congress. And the first two years after the coup, most everything I was doing was either sharing information, talking to reporters, or writing op-eds and articles. And I'd, I'd written like, I don't know, 30 pieces that were all starting to sound the same. And um, and so – and Obama was not listening to what I had to say. They would all say that I'd always end with what Obama should do and he never did it. Um, so I decided to try going to Congress because I was saying, what powers do I have? And I, I, I can – it's absolutely true, everything in the book. Like I did not know what I was doing. My niece gave me a copy of I'm Just a Bill from Schoolhouse Rock. And um, I was so nervous and terrified and you know, gradually also had a network of colleagues that I did this with faith-based people – and geo people in, in D.C. I never did this alone. And the learning curve was incredible. I mean, just about, you know, a lot of things that like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is talking about now about the power and deference and also the race and gender and class politics of Congress are like horrifying and and all these, you know, terrifying lobbyists everywhere in in, um, in gray suits. And you start I, calling them I, the oil and I gas call them lobby. I call oil and gas lobby. You see these clumps of three white men in expensive gray suits and one African-American man or one white woman. And, and I actually, I call them the oil and gas lobby. And then one day on the floor, I actually picked up a business card and it was from the ExxonMobil government relations guy. And I'm like, oh, there they are. Um, but it was also... Uh, and, you know, and I fell for all that imperialist symbolic architecture of the Roman Empire. Um, but it was interesting is that there was a degree of real power that my friends and I came. But not because we came and knocked on doors because at first nobody even believed us, but also because we were able to build on the grassroots. And, you know, here I would point to Chicago, which has, you know, the most powerful one along with Minneapolis and the Bay Area. I don't want to insult everybody else. Grassroots solidarity movement with Honduras. And they put pressure particularly. And Jan Chikesky, Congressman Jan Chikesky, has always been amazing. And so when I walk into her office for for example, I am there with the people of Chicago or Evanston, rather, and and so it's very um, in a, what is it symbiosis or synergistic yep. between the grassroots and uh, what's happening in Washington. But you know, it took a while to crack 
I had to learn all those committees, and you have to learn who the A's are that care. You have to find a member or a senator that cares. You have to you learn you have to find an aide, you know, that's going to listen to you, and then build that relationship. And it's interesting to see some of these relationships now have been going on for eight eight years, and then I have trust, and you work your way higher and deeper. You know, I turn out to have the gene for a certain kind of triangulation of power and strategic thinking, and other people I work with have other. Um, other strengths that I, I don't have. And you have to grovel and say, yes, yes, boss, a lot, I'll tell you that. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange thing, but did, you, did this hearten your feelings about U.S. democracy? Um, ah, did it hearten my feelings? Look, I spent my life as a U.S. history professor, and I have, a, I think, I'd like to think, a clear understanding about how money drives U.S. political processes. So I don't think it heartened my feelings because I also – you could see how the terrifying power of the State Department works. So – and also how centrists carry that load. So I learned a lot of different forms of evil and machinations that, you know, you know about in House of Cards. But seeing it yourself in live action is something else altogether. And I don't think it hardened it. I mean, I think there would have always been certain democratic spaces in this country for grass people coming from the grassroots. There's always been slight ability. It's not like the ruling class has gotten everything it wanted, but we've also have always been pushed back, and that's that's what we're seeing now. I mean, there's there is a little space. There is a space there. I'm talking with Dana Frank about her book, The Long Honduran Night: Resistance, Terror, and the United States in the Aftermath of the Coup. Now, your ask when you went into these congressional offices was to get rid of military and security funding for Honduras. And you're, you're sometimes successful, marginally successful. There were, there were all these nuances that the U.S. consistently put on their security aid uh, to Honduras. But ultimately, the, the momentum of the project wants to keep going, right? I mean, Well, I mean, this question is what do you even ask for? You know, what, how do you make a demand that would get you some power over U.S.? policy because the goal is to use Congress to influence uh, the administration, right? It's a means to an end, a higher end. So, I mean, the ask to suspend all police and military aid until human rights abuses are addressed, so um, it wasn't like indefinite, there's qualifications on it, um, was what we coalesced around early on and we worked with Hondurans about what do the Honduran people want? You know, this isn't just something that comes from the north and worked with Hondurans to talk about what their demand. And of course, this is a way that people talked about U.S. Aid to the Contras in the 1980s, you know, and so we've been. We're also looking at our previous struggles. We didn't invent the wheel, um, but it's also a symbolic ask because it's about the legitimation legitimation of the regime. I mean, partly it's like not in my main. Do not use my tax dollars to keep killing people, and that's still going on using live bullets. So part of it is do not do this with my money as a U.S. citizen, taxpayer. But it's also about the legitimation of U.S. working with these. Um, with these police and military that are widely documented to be corrupt and repressing people. Um, you know, but it's tricky because, well, first of all, I think people probably don't know this, how successful the pushback from Congress has been. There have been as many as 94 members of the House signed letters saying cut police and military aid and led by your own Jan Schakowsky and let's give her another shout out. That has disappeared from these conversations about U.S. policy in Honduras and the caravans. As of last year, there were 71 members on the House on the Berta Cáceres Human Rights in Honduras Act, which calls for suspension of military aid, and it's about to be reintroduced. And we'll, by the way, we want everybody in the state of Illinois on that bill. So we have a, we have a new a river to cross now. You know, the other thing that you're pointing to is also that people may not know that 
that Congress, and this has been led by Senator Patrick Leahy, has put human rights conditions on part of the aid to Honduras since 2012. And we don't, I haven't seen yet for 2019, but that set in these conditions say that most recently 50% of the money, a certain set of the money cannot be released until the State Department certifies that human rights conditions have been met. So that's great. I mean, this is the law. This isn't just we're asking for it. This has been in the law since 2012. The problem is every year the State Department says outrageously and in the face of all evidence that, oh, yes, the, the conditions have been met and there's all kinds of conditions. And then, and then, and then, eventually, but not all of it. The the, House, the Congress releases the money. Now, the money still has not been certified for 2018, and money is still not being held back. But we don't even know about it. It's kind of like a leverage thing, but also can, that can be a good way of getting power for Congress because their biggest power is appropriations. But it also can be a form of constructive engagement because some people say, like WOLA, Washington Office in Latin America, would say, give them a whole lot of money and then put bigger conditions on it so that we have even more power. And I'm like, hello, why are we rewarding these people with even more money no matter how vicious they are? One of the things I got in reading your book was kind of watching the flows of money go in and out of the Honduran thing, whether it's the IMF who is giving the money and – um, you know, the Honduran government steals all the money from their healthcare system. Then the IMF gives them money to to keep going. So, in in some ways, no matter what you're doing, you're you're funding uh, this corrupt regime. You're funding yeah. the military of it. You're funding the the, the corruption side. There, there's just. Um, you know, if you're if you are President Obama and you want more humanitarian aid and less security aid, are you really doing any good? Well, of course, this is a sixty four thousand dollars question: is can you can you give aid to fix the problem? Right? And as you point out, the money goes. The U.S. gives them money, and sometimes it's the U.S. directly, and sometimes it's through the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and the Inter American Development Bank. And they they actually give even more money. They're in the hundreds of millions of dollars for the police, but also for all kinds of things. And then they, in turn, demand the destruction of state services and, and destruction of good government jobs. That's another piece of this. It, it's, there's a big privatization push. That yeah, and is, that's coming is, from the IMF. So the government, the elites steal the money and then they run the government into the ground and then they borrow more money and they're backed by these U.S.-controlled um, lending institutions. And so the money just keeps pouring in and then they just keep stealing it or using it to to build their military up, the increasing military takeover of the country. You know, and meanwhile, of course, the president stole the election and ran in violation of the Constitution. So this question, and this is coming up now, you might have seen a New York Times editorial, which even acknowledged that the election had been stolen by Juan Orlando Hernandez in 2017, but then says we have to give them even more money because it's so bad down there. And, you know, this is a really dangerous argument that they, they're that's saying we should reward this government with even more money because people are fleeing the politics and of this government, all right? And, and you know, this is where you want to make a distinction, which somebody on the Hill taught me, between policy and programs. Like the policy is support Juan Orlando and the narco state. The policy is to pour money, is to support him and celebrate him. And then you can't then – and then that government in terms is what people are fleeing and what's created all this mass poverty and this gang and drug trafficking situation that's so terrible. And then you're going to solve that by giving them even more money. And, you know, even the sort of model programs, which the New York Times loves to talk about in this one neighborhood, this USAID project of gang prevention working with the local police – um, has been proven that the statistics don't actually show it's been effective. 
Um, the police themselves answer to the top of the police that are documented to be drug traffickers. And just in October, in that model neighborhood, the local military, the police, I can't remember which it was, shot up a van with a, where a father was driving his 14-year-old pregnant daughter to the hospital, and there were three kids in the car, and the police just shot up the van, injuring those three kids. So, And that never appears in their story about the model neighborhood, which is designed to say that USAID is going down there with poor, we should give more money to these model projects when those police in that very neighborhood are are killing people and are trying to keep shooting people up, but also embedded in a corrupt police structure. I'm talking with Dana Frank about her book, The Long Honduran Night Resistance, Terror, and the United States in the Aftermath of the Coup. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with Dana Frank about her book, The Long Honduran Night, Resistance, Terror, and the United States in the Aftermath of the Coup. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about your legislative efforts and your lobbying efforts on behalf of getting uh, military and security aid cut to Honduras. Um, You talk about 2014 as being the apex of that. You're doing really well. And then we have this immigration thing take off and uh, the, the young people from Central America start coming to the border and Donald Trump's campaign takes off. There's a whole series of things. And now really when people think about Honduras, they probably think, well, it's a big immigration problem and it's a big drug problem. And the component they're forgetting about is the life in Honduras problem, <laughs> the life for people in Honduras. Um, what what happened there? You, like the whole thing crashed and uh, took on a whole new dimension. Well, I, you know, people are paying attention to us now finally because of these so-called crises of immigration, which are, are crises created by right-wing media to drive other political agendas. I think a lot of people understand that. But people are, in fact, fleeing Honduras for very, very good reasons. And what happened was the, the 2009 military coup that deposed democratically elected President Manuel Zelaya was itself a vast criminal act that um, just threw the doors open for the complete destruction of the rule and law in Honduras, and which means that you that not only can you kill anybody you want and nothing will happen to you, but there's no functioning state. There's no functioning judicial system. Um, and the uh, the police just became almost entirely corrupt. Um, the military got deeper and deeper in with drug trafficking. And then you start having Congress members, prosecutors, attorney generals that are deeply tied in with, with organized crime and drug trafficking. And in that context, then you have, you know, I think then you really have the kinds of things that profilate that people are fleeing. And I think people are familiar, listeners are probably familiar with news stories that say that people are fleeing Honduras because of gangs, violence, and poverty. But what we don't hear is that that situation, which is very real, is the product of 
a Honduran government that has created that situation and that is backed by the United States. So first of all, it's not a natural disaster they're fleeing. And second, they're refugees and refugees from U.S. policy backing this government. So those are – I want to underscore both those points because the gangs have proliferated in this absence of the rule of law. They're very embedded with the police and they're terrorizing people. They're terrorizing girls into – into sexual relationships. They're terrorizing boys into participating with them. They kill people all the time, as do drug traffickers that have proliferated in this context. And also, the the, the gangs are very involved in extortion. So they make a living by, in part, by extorting small businesses who have to pay so-called taxes every week. And I know people that pay these. And you can see the way they're colluded with the police. If you report that to the police, you get killed. I know people that have been killed. If you um, complain to them, the police disappear from the streets until then somebody comes and get, kills the small business person. And then the police come back the next day to patrol the streets against the gangs, quote unquote. And so this kind of collusion with the police is is very clear. And if you read the testimonies are in a lot of the news stories about why people are in the caravans. You can see these stories. Um, and also, you know, people are – the drug traffickers are, again, very much embedded with the very topmost levels of the government and of the military and people are fleeing that. And also, they're feeling this poverty that's created by deliberate company uh, government policies. We talked about the destruction of the state. That includes destruction of government jobs, tens of thousands of government jobs. Um, but also no enforcement of labor laws. And also a lot of these so-called development sectors, which you want to pay attention to when we talk about potential aid, are themselves destroying livelihoods. I mean, the most classic one is palm oil, that the palm oil elites, uh, Miguel Facuse, most famously, allegedly his security guards have killed some of the over 150 campesino activists, land rights defenders, defending against these palm oil producer incursions, but also hydroelectric dam and mining operations that have led to the killing of indigenous people like Berta Cáceres, most famously defending against these incursions. So this is what gets called economic development when actually they're destroying small farmer indigenous people's livelihoods. They're destroying the environment. So, And this is what so-called development policy is supposed to be pouring even more money. So this is what people are fleeing. It's a package of government policies supported by the United States, driven by also the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and Inter-American Development Bank and driven most especially by the government of Juan Orlando Hernandez, the dictator of Honduras. I'm talking with Dana Frank about her book, The Long Honduran Night. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Let's talk a little more about the people in power in Honduras and drug trafficking. Uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez, his younger brother, has been convicted of drug trafficking in the United States. And he has packets stamped with his initials, Tony Hernandez, for the drug shipments. He was involved in processing, receiving, transporting, distributing multi-ton loads of cocaine that arrived in Honduras via planes, go-fast vessels on at least one occasion on a submarine. And that's all from the indictment of the president's brother. There was also a previous president who has a son who was indicted of cocaine distribution. Uh, there are other – a bunch of other officials that have been implicated by a pair of uh, drug-dealing brothers who are singing in the United States. You know, the, one of the prosecutors says it's state-sponsored drug trafficking that's going on in Honduras. Absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. Um, 
And, you know, you'll hear this like, you know, the State Department and military officials from the United States going down and saying, we're helping them fight drug traffickers, which is the most preposterous thing in the world, because we're working with the people who are the drug traffickers. And remember, the drug traffickers in Honduras are responsible for killing a lot of people on this homicide right that is still one of the highest in the world. And so what is going on that we're at the United States is acting, and this is both the Obama and the Trump administrations, acting like this is a great ally of ours. And it's not just that, you know, the president's brother. And and by the way, the president's brother was a Congress member. It wasn't just any guy out there. And, you know, maybe we don't all know what our brothers and sisters are doing, but nobody, hardly anybody would believe that about the president not knowing what his brother was doing. But it's not just these guys that are arrested or in jail, um, but it's also the, the, also the cachiros, who are the drug traffickers that have been singing in New York. One of them has named a guy named Julian Pacheco Teneco, a former general who's the minister of security. That means in charge of all the police that's overseeing drug trafficking flights. And someone else has testified the same thing. And the Associated Press a year ago broke a big story that the top, the new, brand new top three national directors of the police had been documented by internal government documents to be overseeing cocaine trafficking. So we're talking about the very, very, very top and also Associated Press. And I want to give a shout out to them also in a second article talked about how the the drug traffickers are using, you know, military and police equipment and planes to fly stuff over the border. And, you know, how is it possible that United States Southern Command and the State Department wouldn't know about that? I don't, you know, there was also a very good piece by AP about John Kelly and Juan Orlando Hernandez. And I don't know if everybody remembers that, but John Kelly, who was Trump's chief of staff until fairly recently, before that had been uh, the head of the United States Southern Command. And he said that Juan Orlando Hernandez was doing an impressive job of fighting drug trafficking and that and when and then Kelly was briefly head of homeland security and he said oh that Juan Orlando Hernandez was a great friend and a good guy and it's like hello i mean we're talking about celebrating uh, not only people that are drug traffickers but also that are overseeing the militarization of the police the use of the use of live bullets to kill protesters now in the last year and a half um, uh, you know just r- tremendously repressive regime on many fronts as well as stealing government money hand over fist so this is what's a classic phrase of dancing with dictators you know who are drug traffickers you get into three reasons at the end of the book why the US is involved with this country and continues to support it why the US continues to support this government and i i don't know if it's a part of it is just monroe doctrine you cite uh, you cite US southern command likes likes military stuff. We got a military base there. There's strategic things. Uh, lay out the case for the U.S. being involved in this thing. Well, of course, it's the $64,000 question that people ask me. Like, why is the U.S. doing this? I mean, well, first of all, the U.S. has done this for like 150 years. So it's not news that the U.S. is doing this. It's like doing it again at a higher level that we hope the U.S. wasn't doing anymore. And of course, um, it used it did, to be bananas. Now it's it, Yeah, and it's not about <laughs> bananas. It's, and it's not like it, it's not like in the 50s or even in the, or like copper in Chile or something where you can say, here's this exact U.S. economic interest there. It's not that simple, but it's this larger geostrategic thing, and which you could see for many years. But now this, you can see it more clearly with this new Cold War against Russia and China. That the notion, and you tell us the Hondurans, they just laugh that if the U.S. would pull out, Russia is going to run, run in and the Hondurans say, oh, please give us our chances. But there's no evidence of that in Honduras. And there's no evidence that Russia is about to take over Honduras. And But it's, so some of it is this, the U.S. wants its so-called allies, and will take anybody at this point, because they lost a lot of their allies when democracy 
came to Latin America in the 90s and 2000s. And all these, a lot of these governments, when they, when they had democracy and the military was thrown out, started to elect center-left and left governments. And the U.S. sort of woke up when Obama came in and said, whoa, we're losing Latin America. So supporting the coup in Honduras was the first domino pushback. Of course, now we're seeing the aggressive regime change in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, and potentially in Cuba. And then you see now that Juan Orlando is an ally on that that's taking the U.S. line. You can see Juan Orlando in Honduras backing the U.S. position to move the embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. So you can see that big geostrategic alliance thing. U.S doesn't have a lot of, of so so Honduras Hon, let me rewind there Honduras recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel well it hasn't yet legacy? it said it was probably going to and now it's been backpedaling but it looks like it's trying to hit, get a better bargain from Israel now I, it, Honduras if you want to know where the money is coming has 200 currently getting 200 million dollars for um, for arms and equipment from Israel um, and that that happened about three or four years ago, and it's like a, it's a warship and planes. I mean, this is big stuff. Not coincidentally, I want someone to research this. Within two weeks or so of when the U.S. gave, I think, like $53 billion over 10 years to Israel, right at the exact same time, Israel gave $200 million to Honduras. Now, you think that's just a coincidence? I don't. Um, but I don't have any smoking gun there. But um, so you, there's an example of where the money isn't just coming from the United States, or maybe it is. We don't really know. But um, so, you know, Honduras then becomes this geostrategic ally for the United States. And it was always the, quote, unquote, most captive nation of the United States. And who else are they going to have at their command in these big geostrategic ploys? I mean, underneath that, you know, is this deeper U.S.-driven foreign policy, which is about oil, it's but it's about making the world safe for transnational corporations, whatever they want to do. And these alternative governments are challenging that. They challenge it with minimum wages. They challenge it with uh, nationalizations. As, so it's not like it's a simple one corporation, although you can see it in the case of Canadian mining and textile companies. But it's, it is like any country that isn't going to be about that transnational corporate agenda is a threat to the money powers that run U.S. foreign policy. And then we have the Southern Canaan and the military, and they're it's taking me a long time to figure them out. But you can tell from things John Kelly has said that they're an engine that runs on themselves. They just do things so they can get more money in, in competition with the people that run Africa, you know. And at one point in the book, you describe a $1.3 billion investment that comes militarily into Honduras that is about, I assume, I don't know, listening devices or some kind of... Well, this is one of the great mysteries. I mean, Martha Mendoza, the Associated Press, one of the heroes of the book, heroines of the book, you know, she uncovered this like nobody really knows. It was probably radar. Nobody even knows where that money went. But I would just underscore that when we're talking about U.S. aid to Honduras, we don't know where the vast majority of it goes uh, because there's most of it is non-transparent. I mean, I talk regularly to the Honduras expert at the Congressional Research Service, and he regularly admits we don't know where the defense appropriations money goes in Honduras. So we're talking about democracy up here. And, we, you know, we can talk about there's no transparency for the Honduran government. We don't have transparency for our own government. So we have millions and millions of dollars that are going in, into the hundreds of millions over the years, pour into this Honduran repressive narco, narco state, and we don't even know and I forget whether it went to the t- expensive toilet seat or not. We don't know what it went to at all. What should people listening 
take away from this and do? If they want, they want to see something different in their government, uh, how do they handle this? Well, I mean, I think that you can – it's not going to do you a lot of good to call Trump and say, please don't do this. I mean, we do have very receptive people in Congress in, in both houses. I mean, certainly the Berta Cáceres Act is going to be reintroduced in March – sponsored by Congressman Hank Johnson. And um, you want to get everybody in Illinois on that. We had several last time. We want every single member. You can start calling them up right now and say, please be an initial co-sponsor. And, the, and the result of that would be that, no military. That would, military that would say, it, well, that would have to pass. So it's not probably not going to pass. You know, uh, suspend police and military to aid to Honduras, and also vote no on all new. Uh, multilateral development bank loans to Honduran security forces. So it has a piece about the loans, which is where the big other piece of the big money comes in. So please call your Congress member. Please thank Dan Schakowsky for being so great. Please tell everybody else to get on board. And also put the pressure on Duckworth, Senators Duckworth and Durbin. And Durbin has been coming through a little bit better in the last year, and we want to thank him for that and demand more. He He did sign a letter from uh, 13 senators in October led by um, Senator Markey and by Jan Schakowsky in the House about threats to human rights defenders and observers um, trying to get into or report within Honduras. And he did sign that, which is a really great thing because he's not done that sort of thing in the past, which shows that he's listening. Um, so please make him listen more and please tell Tammy Duckworth to step forward. She hasn't done anything. And so please make your voice heard. And I do want to say, look, it's like I don't know what difference that makes in terms of the Trump administration, but it's certainly very important because then you get in the media saying that Senators X and Y have said this and Durbin is obviously top leadership. And um, that is also about legitimating our point of view here and also getting it out there that it's not just it's not just a victim story. I mean, it's so much about the caravan. It's like, oh, they're just little terrible, vic- you know, it's awful victims. It's just naturally happening. And this is a way of giving shedding light on the fact that it's U.S. policy. And also there are powerful people that object to U.S. policy. You know, the problem right now is the policy is being driven by Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, and he's driving things very ideologically. So they also have to put pressure on Rubio to, you know, you know, to call him out on this kind of thing. You know, for example, he's working with Elliot Abrams in Venezuela, and Elliot Abrams was twice convicted in the 80s for lying to Congress as part of the Iran-Contra support in the Reagan administration. So it's like we also just want to be talking about Rubio and what's driving the whole policy right now. Dana Frank is the author of The Long Honduran Night, Resistance, Terror, and the United States in the Aftermath of the Coup. It's out from Haymarket Books, and she is a professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I've talked with her over the years about Honduras, and it was good to see you in person and sit down with you. Well, and thank you so much for endlessly caring about Honduras and letting me talk and all the great work that all of you folks do all the time, how amazing it is to be here. Coming up after the break, we'll hear from an Italian chef who has the audacity to think he can teach Chicagoans how to do pizza better. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Chicago is a pizza town. We've got the deep dish, we've got the thin crust. But for today's Food Monday segment, Monica Ang caught up with one chef who thinks he can teach us to do it better the Italian way. Interpretation by Alexandra Solomon. So before we go off to Bonchi, Alexandra, you lived in Rome for quite some time. I don't even know what Roman-style pizza is. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, I actually lived above a pizza place that was Roman-style. Yes, I was a frequent, frequent customer. Um, So Roman-style pizza, you buy it by the slice, only it's kind of in this big metal um, pizza pan. And the crust is, is thicker than kind of typical typical Chicago-style pizza. And not like the Neapolitan that's, like, super thin. No, it's not super thin, and it's not—it's it's kind of crunchier than okay. the Neapolitan Is it uh, all style. spongy, like a focaccia? Or no? um, it's, it's somewhere kind of in the middle of that. Um, but, I, you know, so it's a little more bread-like, but it isn't as bread-like as Neapolitan-style, I would say. And you go into the place, and you pick—usually, sort of the, the tradition is you don't just get one kind. You sort of pick a little slab of maybe two or three types because it's by the pound. They weigh it. Um, or by the kilo in Or Europe. by the kilo, right. Yeah. Here it would be by the pound. But you sort of, they'll, they'll kind of, they usually use these scissors to uh, cut the slice. Pizza scissors? What? True. It's very cool. So they yeah. cut you off kind of your selection. And the, the tradition is you buy a couple. And they'll cut them in half. So you're kind of eating these small squares of a bunch of different uh, flavors. And they'll weigh it. And then you're uh, good to go. It sounds a little to me like my current favorite, which is Detroit-style pizza, which is, again, in those rectangular metal pans. It's crunchy and almost a little, like, caramelized on the outside. Um, the Detroit-style pizza does not have the kinds of toppings that I understand they have at Bonchi and Rome, like 200 different types. Yeah, there's all kinds of toppings, and typically in Italy, and in Bonchi's like this too, they sort of rotate them. So you're not always getting, there's the classics, like the margarita, which will be tomato and mozzarella and fresh basil, um, potato uh, on top. That's a, that's a classic one. I know, it's really good. It's one of my favorites. But then they tend to rotate the flavors and the toppings, so you kind of don't, you kind of get something new every time you go. Well, they've got three locations in Chicago. Let's skedaddle and head over to Wicker Park. Can't wait. So here we are on a cold Tuesday night at Pizzeria Bonchi. And walking down the counter display here with Alexandra, we see margarita, four cheese with ricotta, mozzarella, parmigiano, and gorgonzola, fried onion, parmigiano, crostini, prosciutto, and mozzarella, rosa, burrata, anchovy, Eggplant parmesan. That's the one you like, Alex? I do. I, do. I, I like my eggplant parmesan, yes. All right. Rosa, bell pepper, buffalo. Now, souply, they look like uh, arancini. Is that the same thing? What I'm talking about here are these rice balls rolled in breadcrumbs and fried. The Sicilian version called arancini often has meat sauce and peas inside. But this Roman version is smaller with cheese and sometimes chicken livers inside. It's called souply. They're not exactly the same thing, but they're similar. I mean, they taste similar. 
Zucchini, black pepper, lemon peel? Yeah, no, I love the potato mozzarella one. That's that's like a classic. Uh, Rosa sausage mushroom, soppressata mozzarella, cacio pepe, onion provolone, pecorino. These aren't as weird as I thought they'd be. I mean, yeah, I think a lot of these are pretty traditional. Like this one, Rosa, with the mushroom and parsley that's got no cheese. That's a pretty traditional one. Um, Arrabbiata, also a pretty traditional one. Sausage and mushroom, yeah. There's, there, there are a lot of kind of classics. I don't know. I don't think you would see the zucchini, black pepper, lemon peel, and ricotta one elsewhere. Okay. But well, we weren't here to stand around looking at different types of pizza. We were here to meet the famous Gabriele Bonci, the namesake of Bonci Pizza. He's like this big bear of a chef with red hair and a red beard. You can see a picture of all of us together on the Worldview Facebook page. And we start out with the usual public radio question to make sure his voice levels are okay. Can you say your name, what you do, and what you had for breakfast? Gabriele Bonci, avocado toast. Me too! Yeah. Yep. I really did have avocado toast for breakfast that morning. I could tell we were going to hit it off. Tell me, here we are in Chicago. This is the first city you opened up a pizzeria in, in the Western Hemisphere. Why Chicago? From here, Alexander translates my questions and his delicious answers. La parte ovest del mondo, come mai? Allora, io non conosco, non conoscevo l'America. I don't know. I didn't know America, but my company picked this city because people here already know pizza, and they already appreciate it. And I have to say, it was a great choice because I've fallen in love with Chicago. It's beautiful. So, have you tried Chicago-style pizzas? Assaggiato la pizza di Chicago, quella tipica. Yeah, I don't know if you heard that, but he calls Chicago-style pizza the deep. L'amo. I love yeah, yeah, yeah. So can you describe to me what your ideal pizza is? What what should this taste like? First of all, it has to have a good dough. That's very important. The crust must be dough that is light and airy and gets crunchy, but also the right toppings. Okay, and then what about the toppings? What are your favorite toppings? Pizza by the Slice hasn't been around all that long. It began in the 60s. It's not a historic style of pizza like Neapolitan. So we're writing this history of sliced pizza, and, and so I take responsibility for putting anything on top. You can communicate with pizza because it's being created in a moment when there is social media, where there is everything. Food is becoming international. So starting with the classic style, like pizza with potatoes, in every city you can use pizza as a dish. You can create whatever you want on top. That's my style. I'm a big guy. I love a lot of toppings. Here in the U.S. and in Italy, we do the pizza mufoletta. When you see it, it seems like a pizza you do in America. But I do it in Rome. That kind of pizza is a way to make food an ambassador to the rest of the world. I heard this rumor about tripe pizza, and I wanted to ask him about it. Is he, is he afraid to be more experimental here in Chicago? Are we not into some of the more experimental ones like tripe? Hmm. Hai paura di sperimentare qui a Chicago perché magari come città non è una città... Yes, I'm afraid to put tripe on top. My business partners prefer that I put something like pineapple on top of something Italian. 
But I agree. Why not follow the taste of the people? Why should I have them eat something they don't like? If in Chicago people don't like tripe, but they like pineapple and prosciutto, why not do it? If you ask me for it, I'll do it. You have to be open. The most beautiful thing about making food is when you make something that people like. Se a Chicago mangiano, la cosa più bella di quando mangia la gente è quando le cose piacciono. So I hear you were here for the super cold weather last week. Tell me how you liked it and what you did. Tantissimo. Io sono un orso polare. I loved it. I'm a polar bear. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. You are too cold? No, no, no. I... Well, he, he, he's enjoying it. He likes cold weather. So. Oh. We actually went uh, in the morning of that day to have a walk on the Michigan. Oh, Lake. wow. <laughs> you were in the lake. Yeah. On his trips into Chicago, Chef Banchi geeks out over bread and dough with Greg Wade, the baker over at the Publican. <laughs> okay, so I hear that you that you uh, that you were doing some baking at the Publican. Tell me about that. No, non succede nulla. C'è soltanto una fortissima amicizia. It's just a strong friendship. We have the same passion. We get together and make stuff. The beautiful thing is that there's this moment where there isn't jealousy, there isn't competition, it's international. One of my bakers will come in from uh, Atlanta. There's a lot of exchange at the moment among bread makers. Not as much among the folks who do pizza. What is the secret to this incredible crust? L'impasto... It's dough that has a lot of time to rise. We let it rise two days. It takes 48 hours. You need a lot of time. That is extremely important. Will you open any more of these in Chicago? And this is when he refers us to his associate, who runs the U.S. side of things. Oh, absolutely. I'm, my name is Rick Tasman. I'm the CEO of Bonsi USA. We're looking, uh, in fact, our real estate team was in, uh, in the loop today, and they were also in Milwaukee, at the, around the arena in Milwaukee. Uh, we're going to be opening in Miami and New Orleans, uh, and you know, we're continuing to look at you know, Philadelphia, D.C., New York. Uh, in the, some of the bigger cities. How did you guys decide to make Chicago the first destination for this? We knew we needed to be in an urban environment, and we were familiar with, more familiar with Chicago than, say, New York or Philadelphia. Or We know Chicago's a pizza town. You know, there's a pretty good route between O'Hare and, and Rome, and there's a lot. You know, when, you go to, when you go to Pizzarium in, in Rome, most of the people there are, are students from, a lot of them are from Loyola studying abroad. So, you know, I'd go there and I was talking about, and they're going, How, what do you think this would be work in, you, in the United States? Oh, yeah, what, would your parents like it? Oh, they'd love it. So we also felt like the people in Chicago would let us know they like this because it's a different pizza experience. It's, you know, when you're buying it by the cut and by weight. So it's a test case city. It is. A te- it is. In fact, in the business plan, it was a proof of, proof of concept phase. Okay, so uh, when you come to visit Chicago, last question, what's your favorite thing to eat? Honey butter fried chicken. Yep, you heard it. Honey butter fried chicken on Elston, where Chef Banchi loves the chicken dipped in honey butter from chefs Christine Schakowsky and Josh Kulp. I love, I love, for real, number one. You can't find it in Rome? Non c'è Roma, honey butter fried chicken. No. Sounds like Chicago's got a leg up on Rome when it comes to fried chicken. Well, molti grazie, chef. So now we finally have a chance to taste the stuff. Okay, I know I'm partial to the Parmigiano, so I'm going I'm going there first. 
You gotta like eggplant. I like eggplant. Me too. And I love the crust. I think it's amazing. Mm. This is the prosciutto, I think he said. It was prosciutto and mozzarella. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. Very good. This is a soprassata, which is like, it's similar yeah. to pepperoni, right? Yeah, it's spicy sausage. Yeah. It's a spicy sausage. Yeah. I also think this one's really good. So I like a little spice, a little kick. Next, we try this square of pizza piled high with fluffy white cheese and lemon. I don't, this one I don't think I'll like as much because I'm not a huge fan. But I don't, I don't love ricotta like on top of things. I don't mind it mixed in with stuff, but I'm not a huge ricotta fan. Where's it? Yep, it's it's lemon, ricotta, pepper, and that's it. Okay, grab one. Yeah, I like my parmigiano. Well, the point of this place is to be able to taste as many variations as possible, then choose your favorite and take some home to the people you love. So that's exactly what we did. Thank you. That's it. Alexandra and I step out into the night, into the cold ice storm night with our warm pizza ready to warm it at home and warm our families. That's right. They're going to be very excited when I bring this in the door. And that was WBEZ's Monica Ang. Interpretation by Alexandra Solomon. Tomorrow on Worldview, Brexit may be dominating the headlines from the U.K., but don't forget that one of the underlying factors of the political change was immigration. Recently, the U.K. has been revoking citizenship from Brits who did humanitarian work in Iraq and Syria. They're being put in the same camp as U.K. citizens who went off to join ISIS and are also losing their citizenship. So we'll talk about citizenship in the U.K. tomorrow on Worldview. Did you know that you can listen to Worldview whenever and wherever you want? Subscribe to the Worldview podcast in the iTunes store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could even go to wbez.org slash worldview and subscribe there. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.